Deadline is 5 p.m. Friday, January 29th, 2010. And this is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I am Malihe Razazan, hosting the program today. Under the cover of combating the spread of swine flu in May of 2008, the Egyptian government ordered the slaughter of all countries' 350,000 hogs. The slaughter destroyed the livelihood of about 60,000 residents of Mokattam, known as Zabalin, or garbage people. The Zabalin collected Cairo's residents' trash door-to-door, selling recyclable and feeding the organic waste to their pigs. Cairo, a city of 20 million, produces 13,000 metric tons of garbage every day. For more than five decades, residents of Cairo relied on Zabalin's cheap labor. In her award-winning documentary film, Garbage Dreams, Egyptian-American filmmaker Mai Eskandar chronicles the lives of three teenage boys growing up in Mokattam, the world's largest garbage village on the outskirts of Cairo. Almost the whole community that lives there works in garbage or is related to somebody who works in garbage. So the first time I went there, I'm half Egyptian, and I used to go every year to visit my family. It was 2005, and and I found out about this garbage village um, that's on the outskirts of Cairo years back when I had visited there. And so in 2005, when I had gone there um, and was looking for a volunteer opportunity, I stumbled across the community-run recycling school that had just opened in the neighborhood. And what was so amazing about this recycling school is that they focused on turning their century-old recycling trade into a 21st century job. So I was really drawn to that and started volunteering there. And, and then I finally met the kids who later become, became the protagonists in Garbage Dreams. So the first time I went to the Garbage Village was when I was 12. A family friend of mine had taken me there to attend a wedding. I mean, obviously, it was just overwhelming the first time you go visit there. Just everywhere there's garbage, you know, up to three stories high, and children are playing in the trash, and just goats and chickens and pigs were feeding off the waste. It's very overwhelming. Basically, it's very chaotic, too. The original name of this place is not Garbage City. It's called Mokattam. Mokattam, yes. There's five garbage villages actually in Cairo, but the biggest one is called Mokattam, or Mokattam, and it's located on the hills of Mokattam, so that's why it's called Mokattam. Um, but actually, it's located within a larger area of Manchet Nasser. Uh, which is a slum city. 
Yes, it's a slum city on the outskirts of Cairo. Tell us about the people of Mukattam. Who are they? How did they end up residing in that area? And how did the area turn into a garbage city? Well, the, the Zebelin, which in Arabic literally translates to mean garbage people, were actually a community of landless peasants, farmers. And they came to Cairo about 50 years ago looking for employment. And they didn't know anything, how to do anything else but, you know, raise crops and feed their animals. So they had with them pigs and goats and all sorts of animals. And then they decided, then they started collecting the, the garbage from Cairo residents and feeding the, the waste and the garbage to their animals. And that's how really how they became, it started in the trade of garbage collection and garbage recycling. Over the years, garbage changed and they became more, um, the percentage of other waste like plastic and tin, aluminum grew and they ended up learning how to recycle that and that's how they became, um, you know, more advanced recyclers. This community is predominantly Coptic Christian because they raise pigs and in Islam, you know, people don't eat pigs, they don't raise pigs. So it naturally became a job of the Coptic Christian community in Cairo. And the reason that they ended up in this neighborhood is mainly that they kept actually getting evicted from different areas within Cairo. Over the years, they ended up settling in Mokattam because it was right on the hills of Cairo. And people say that they didn't um, get evicted from there because after the, there was no other place to go after the hills. And when um, was this? How far back they, does it date to? I think that was 30 years ago that they moved into, um, into Mokattam. And also they ended up having getting electricity in the 1980s, in the 19, late 1970s, 1980s. And that's actually when um, a lot of their recycling centers became more advanced because they were able to use electricity to run their machinery. So in the 1980s when they got electricity, they had to then register with um, the authorities, register their, their housing so it no longer became informal as informal and it was harder to kick them out of their area since you know you you register with the uh with the state by using when you use electricity now what is the relationship between the er residents of Mohattam or what's known to be as garbage city with the rest of Cairo I mean how much do people in Cairo know about them how much do they care about these urban slums and people who live there because during your film we see passers-by shouting garbage boy garbage boy pick up the garbage is that a general sentiment towards these communities I would say that in general people tend to look down on the profession of garbage collection and with it garbage collectors and the Zebeline, it's not, they're not recognized for how much they actually contribute to society and to the, actually to the earth in general. I mean, they recycle 80% of everything they collect. And in a way, they're leaders in recycling and they certainly aren't given the respect that they should knowing that they're so advanced in their trade. And do people are aware of the fact that people in Mokattam end up recycling 80% of organic and non-organic residential waste? I don't know if it's so much that people don't know as much as it doesn't, uh, people don't acknowledge it as as being important. The larger world doesn't know that, that they actually recycle 80%. You know, your film opens with scenes of Mokattam, piles of food waste and two-story mountains of aluminum cans cluttering the streets pigs walking around in between 
trucks hauling crates of plastic bottles. What are the consequences for the health of people who live next to piles and piles of garbage? I think that the consequences, I mean, there's definitely negative consequences of living so closely with garbage and not following health and safety measures that are quite simple to follow and they just don't have the, the, the financial means to necessarily follow them as much as they'd like to. Of course, there are consequences, but there's also what I wanted to show in Garbage Streams is that there's actually larger consequences to not doing the work that the Zeppelin do, which is recycling 80% of everything they collect. If they don't recycle it, we're basically living in the garbage. We would be living in the gar- in our own garbage the way they are. I mean, we would landfill it, we would put it out of sight, but the long-term effects would, would catch up with us. What did you see as the result of working in this community and talking to them? Well, first off, it's very hard to separate the diseases and the health issues that arise out of working so closely with garbage and mm-hmm. just the fact that they live in poverty and a lot of with poverty comes a lot of misinformation on how to deal with health issues when they come up so it's really hard to, to separate the two and for sure you know health issues were prevalent throughout the community and how did I perceive it I mean I, I felt I felt for them more than anything else. I started to have, you know, had relationships with them and cared about them very deeply. So to me, it was more of a, an emotional um, tug of war to see that. As you said, uh, this community recycles 80% of the garbage they collect. The film features three young residents of Garbage City, Atham, Nabil, and Osama. They are garbage collectors and they also recycle the garbage that they collect. How did you find these three characters? Well, I found Osama right away. Osama is the the boy that um, always gets into trouble and kind of a jokester. And I was just drawn to him because he's so charismatic. And what I learned to love about him as a character, too, is that he was so... Um, open with his feelings. He didn't really have this, you know, natural barrier that many of us do about um, filtering what we say and caring about and so that we we end up looking good to the outside world. He was very raw and open. So I, I found him right away. And then I was drawn to Adham because Adham is what I didn't, never expected to find in a garbage city. I never expected somebody to be so enthusiastic about their trade and to know so young about how um, their livelihood is really affecting the earth and the environment in a very positive way. And also to have the foresight, he also has the foresight to see where his profession can go. Mm. So I was very impressed with that, um, especially that he's so young. He was 17 when I first met him. And then Nabil, I was drawn to as a character, um, mainly because he was a good balance between the two extremes of, of Osama and Adham. Nabil was a good, you know, middle ground. And he was one of the characters that throughout the film, as his family started to lose their garbage route to the foreign multinational waste companies that Egypt hired, he had to go and scavenge on the streets of Cairo and basically found scraps under mm-hmm. bridges and, and tunnels all over in the city of Cairo. And that's how he survived. And, and, and we're going to talk about uh, the, the multinationals a bit later, but I wanted you to paint a picture about the whole process of how they collect the garbage and recycle the garbage they collect through the lives of one of the characters of your film. If you can take us through a day in life of one of the characters of your film. Okay, well, for example, Nabil, 
wakes up every morning around five thirty, six o'clock. Gets and ready. And how old is he? He's 18 years old, and he's been working in the same way since he was seven. He used to accompany his father when he used to go into Cairo to collect garbage. So Nabil actually goes every morning, wakes up to collect Cairo's garbage. He had a list of residents that he used to service, and he used to go up to their flats, collect the garbage, and then take it back to the garbage village. His mother and, and sisters would stay home and separate the garbage manually by hand. Organic items would be separated from non-organic items, and then the non-organic items would be separated even further down to aluminum, plastic, tin. And from there, those items would be sold to different other people in the neighborhood. So, for example, the tin gets sold to someone like Adham, who wakes up every morning and has a tin cutting, a can cutting factory. So he would go and separate from the aluminum and the tin. He would find all the soda cans, take it to his little factory, and he cuts off the tops of the lids of the soda cans because the tops are made from aluminum while the body is made of tin. And the aluminum is worth six times as much as the tin. So they separate it, and then he sells it to an aluminum recycler and a tin recycler, two different price range. And then what happens? And then, for example, the aluminum recycler, we could have there would be a guy in the neighborhood who would have an aluminum um, factory, and they would melt down the aluminum and then put it into bundles and sell it abroad to either abroad outside of Cairo to places like China or uh, within Egypt proper, they would have different people who would then take the raw materials and uh, who would buy the raw materials and then do something with it later on, remanufacture a new Coke can or what, what have you. And how much money do they make from collecting and recycling this trash? It really depends on their job that they have. Usually somebody who owns their own factory and has a few employees, someone who's considered fairly well off within the neighborhood will make something like 4,000 pounds a month. So that's and, a and what does that mean exactly? I mean, what can you do with 4,000 pounds a, a month in Egypt? 4,000 pounds is a little less than $1,000 a month. So um, that's a high salary amongst the Zebeline. Most of them make something like, for example, Adham, he makes something like 20 pounds a day. And with uh, two pounds, you could buy a cheap bean sandwich, for example. So someone like Adham and his family is barely making it. Making it. Now, Sama's father, who works in one of these factories as a laborer, makes only 100 pounds a week, so it's even less. And how did this community come up with such an innovative and efficient system, collecting the garbage and uh, recycling it? And when did they come up with this idea? I think that they came up with it just because they were forced to come up with solutions in order to survive. Mm -hmm. Basically, they were very poor farm laborers, and their only option was, the only thing they knew was how to feed their animals. So their very innovative way of doing that is to find, you know, what can these animals eat, which is garbage. And then from then on, as the trash in Cairo changed and grew, then they said, okay, what are, you know, other resources do we have? And they started slowly, you know, sorting the waste, and they started actually recycling in the 1980s, and a lot of it had to do with grants from Italy and also from the World Bank that helped them establish more um, 
events or cycling centers. But the idea of recycling came from them, and they're just always so ingenious about trying to find a way to survive. The city of Cairo signed a contract with foreign waste disposal companies from Italy and Spain. These companies have monopolized the city garbage collection. These foreign waste companies affected the livelihoods of the Zebulin in a very detrimental way. And basically they took away their livelihood and they struggled. And like I said earlier, the Zebulin always find ways of persevering and managing even in really bad situations. So one thing that they did was a lot of them maintained their relationships with their residents that they used to service and would still go and, and service them early in the morning before the, the multinationals used to arrive. They are banned from collecting garbage. Yeah, it's illegal to do that. It's illegal, or yeah. Or they would uh, go and, you know, be forced into a scavenging, which is basically finding um, any sort of cardboard on the on the streets of Cairo and that's what Nabil ends up doing towards the end of the movie and uh, actually they they gave him a video camera to go film themselves working in garbage and when they came back with this footage I, I was really heartbroken I mean it really made me realize how poor he is you know the fact that he's just collecting gar- cardboard off the streets mm. and that's the way he makes his living you know, 18 million people live in Cairo and they produce 13,000 tons of garbage every day. And there is no waste disposal system. So how has bringing these multinational garbage collectors from other countries changed the waste disposal system in Cairo? There was actually a, a waste disposal system before the multinationals arrived, but it wasn't citywide and it was very um, disjointed. I think this is an attempt to you know, revamp it and make it more unified. I think that in the, in the end, the residents weren't happy with the service that the multinationals provided because what had made the Zebelin waste collection system so effective was the, the same conditions that lend itself to having Zebelin were the same conditions that made it really difficult for a foreign waste company to um, function. For example, the Egyptians are used to having their garbage picked up from their door every day, and this is a service that Zebelin provided, yet it's really difficult for a multinational waste company to be able to find the labor and to pay somebody as a laborer to do the service so instead they set up a bin system where they told residents to bring down their garbage and place it in in the bins outside in trash bins outside their apartment buildings now the residents of Cairo they don't you know that's they weren't motivated to do this. They they didn't like to go to the bin. They found it dirty. The the trash never made it into the bins. The bins got moved in order to make more parking space. And eventually, by the end of the day, as people were coming back to park their cars, many times the the bin would end up on the on the end of the street. You know, as the Zebulin lost their job, uh, many of them became scavengers and started picking the waste out of the bin. And um, then even other people who uh, I don't think were Zebulin who were scavengers or very poor people would would actually steal the bins and recycle them because the, the material that the bins were made out of were very valuable. So many times the bins got stolen. And they only these multinational corporations only recycle 20% of the waste as opposed to 80% um, by the Zebelins. 
The other interesting thing in your film is this, uh, the training school that they have. You highlight uh, the recycling school in Mokattam where kids learn to read, to break down plastic bottles. How did the idea of a school come about? I mean, after the waste haulers came to Cairo, the school even organized a field trip to show the children the large landfills where the foreign companies dumped the waste. Basically, everything went into the same landfill. The uh, recycling school actually has an interesting story behind it. So what happened was that there was a, a consulting firm called CID that came up with a brainchild behind the, the recycling school. And the idea behind it was they knew the multinationals were coming and they were going to take over the jobs of of the Zebelin. So they said, okay, who are the people in the neighborhood that are just not going to make it, who, who are just going to, you know, die basically or not survive this transition? So it was the poorest boys in the neighborhood, mostly children of garbage collectors. So they set up a collaboration with Procter & Gamble. What they had done is the CID did a study where they realized that... What is CID? CID Consulting, it's a consulting firm based in in Cairo. It's a non-profit. So basically they did this study along with others, Zebeline. They did a study that people from outside the neighborhood, merchants would come into the garbage village and purchase discarded shampoo bottles that were in good condition. Then these merchants would take it and sell it to traders within Cairo. And after a long chain of, of selling to different traders, it would get sold onto the black market where somebody would take it, refill the discarded shampoo bottle that's in good shape with soapy, cheap perfume shampoo and um, resell it into to the supermarkets. So now, now, you know, Procter & Gamble, who manufactures cosmetics such as Pert and other shampoo products, would end up having their bottles selling, you know, on the market and, and counterfeit material is being sold inside the bottle, basically. So people would come and they would get a bad bottle of Procter, a bad Procter & Gamble bottle and they would think this product was no good. So Procter & Gamble was losing the reputation of its product and it was also losing the sale of the bottle. So they went to Procter & Gamble and said, you know, we can intercept this trade. Why don't you in, uh, invest in, and in turn, you know, invest in the recycling school? So Procter & Gamble agreed and gave the um, school funds to start the school. And another thing is that when they gave the school funds, then within the school, the teachers would give the boys at the school microloans. And the kids would go into the neighborhood and buy the Shemperk and uh, other Procter & Gamble shampoo bottles buy it before the merchants from outside the neighborhood came to, to buy them and then they would bring them back to the school and then they would get paid for every bottle that was bought back to the school so they would learn so they would make an income um at the same time they would learn how to uh, be young traders and the bottles at the school would then be granulated and destroyed so they would never end up on the black market but what makes this so ingenious is that this school gave the kids an opportunity to learn and to earn they have to earn an income in order to take time off work they're so poor that they, they you know they can't actually afford to take time off work to to attend schools but in order to take part of the program they have to learn how to fill out a contract they have to learn how to to mark how many shampoo bottles that they received and collected on an Excel sheet on the computer. They have to know about health and safety and how to operate a recycling machine in a proper way. They have to learn math. They have to take a number of arts and drama courses. So 
their whole education re- revolves around the shampoo bottle. And that's how they then they can also learn how to apply what they learn to their trade. One of the things that they learn at the school is to set up a business, for example, but how to formalize their business as well and how to register it with, you know, the city of Cairo so that they're legitimized. And then they're basically their goal is to enter, re-enter the formal waste disposal system of Cairo and to be a, an integral part of it in a formalized way and so that they can't be pushed out of the way. I mean, there's no reason why they can't manage all of Cairo's waste in a modern, in a modern efficient but, way. But can they compete with these multinational corporations? I think that in a way that they, the residents are realizing, the residents of Cairo are realizing that multinationals are not doing a good job and that when their contract ends in 2015, I think um, there's a good chance that the Zebelin could come back and and take over the garbage collection system again. If they can prove that they're willing to also modernize their trade. As we talked earlier about um, how they recycled organic waste was feeding it to their pigs. Mm-hmm. In May, Egypt ordered the slaughter of 350,000 pigs as part of swine flu prevention measures. How that impacted the, the residents of um, Mokatta? In a very um, negative way. It was very difficult and a lot of them are really struggling to survive uh, right now. It's become actually quite tough for so, them. Ha- so did they lose all their pigs? Yeah, there's no more pigs in Cairo. Well, I wasn't there at the time, so I can't give you real details about what it was like, but I I know that um, it was just very traumatic for them because it happened overnight. It was, for many, especially gar- the garbage collectors themselves, not, their, not the people in the neighborhood so much that did the recycling, but the, the collectors, it, you know, they lost their income with the killing of the pigs, and they weren't properly compensated for it as far as I heard. So it was very, very traumatic for them, and a lot of the and a lot of the families have started to take their children out out of schools because they can no longer afford to um, send their kids to school. Uh, Mai, at every turn in your film, we see the abject poverty in this community and how the residents are forced to collect and recycle garbage to survive. Yet, almost in every interview and review that I have seen about your um, documentary film, there is very little attention being paid to economic realities of these people. And your film is analyzed mainly from an environmental angle. Even though residents of Mohattam are very, very efficient in recycling the garbage they collect, 80% versus 20% that multinationals do. But um, still the question is, at what cost? I just think the larger question is when you really look at the country, almost more than almost half of the country lives off $2 a day. The jobs that the Zebelin do are actually good jobs in the fact that they do have a job. Can they modernize it and do it in a, in a way that has less of a human cost, as you put it? Sure, you know, it'd be great if they can modernize and formalize their trade and take better care of health measures and et cetera and to allow them to live a more decent life. But the opportunities that are there are very few in Cairo. There's a huge, you know, Egypt is a poor country, as well as, you know, many other nations have large populations of poor. And the divide between rich and poor is, is quite wide. So, you know, it's a, a larger poverty issue. I don't, they don't have many other options. Mai Eskandar is director of the award-winning documentary film Garbage Dreams. 
For more information, you may check out the film's website at garbagedreams.com. There will be two screenings of Garbage Dreams in the Bay Area on Thursday, January 7th at 5.30 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. at Zines Media Center Fantasy Studios located at 2600 10th Street in Berkeley. There will be a reception following the screenings to find out how decisions made in Copenhagen will affect the climate and the livelihoods of over 15 million informal recyclers from around the world. This event is sponsored by Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives and co-sponsored by Arab Film Festival, Ecology Center and the Story of Stuff Project. For more information, please call 510-883-9490, extension 119. You have been listening to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover on KPFA in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Please stay tuned for free speech radio news coming up next. And thanks for listening. friends and KPFA family. I'm KPFA station manager Lam Lam These are very hard times for all of us. In our recent fund drives, our listeners have been supporting us consistently, but have only been able to afford to give smaller donations, which has resulted in a significant decline in our revenue. We have been mandated by our national board to make deep cuts to our budget. Each department at the station, programming, operations, development, and administration is being cut by 20%. All public affairs programs are being cut across the board and reductions have been made to bring each show's cost into line with its income. Managers at the station, including myself, have also taken a pay reduction.